Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 105 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at DNOs. Who are they? What do they do? And why are they important to the rollout of electric vehicles? This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap. Before we start, I wanted to thank uh, everyone who listens to the podcast. Now, I know that not everyone listens right the way through to the end of the podcast, and the reason I know that can only be found out by listening right through to the end of the podcast. If you know, you know. So many of you may not know that I wrote a little something called So You've Gone Electric. It's an e-book that's available on Amazon Worldwide. It covers all those topics you might find confusing when you first get your EV. Preconditioning, charging, planning a longer journey, charge point operators, what to do if you live in a flat, all that sort of stuff. Basically, it's a written version of a lot of the topics we've discussed here on the, po- on the podcast. So if you've just bought an EV, or if you're thinking of buying one, why not follow the link in the show notes and pick up a version? It's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. Our main topic of discussion today is DNOs. If you've ever listened to discussions with any of the charge point operators or even people who install charge points at your house, chances are you'll come across the term DNO. It stands for District Network Operator and it's a topic a bit like the dark arts in Hogwarts about which not many people know a lot of detail. If you've listened to the roundtable episode from last season, and quite a lot of you did, it's now the most downloaded episode of the podcast, You'll have heard me chat with Stuart Reed, who works for SSE, Scottish Southeast Electricity, who are a DNO. And I'm delighted to welcome Stuart back to the podcast for a longer, more in-depth discussion. Welcome, Stuart. Hi, good to be here again. Thank you very much for, uh, for your time. I appreciate that. Could you just remind everyone of your title and your role, please? Yeah, um, so I'm Stuart Reed. I'm the head of Future Networks. In, it's actually SSEN, so it's Scotland, Scottish Southern Energy Networks. My apologies. Um, and uh, to be honest, that's probably one of the things we want to talk about, actually, is how, how the whole industry is because it's incredibly complex. And uh, so it's very good to, good to help people to understand how it's, how it's arranged to, to some extent. OK, well, let's jump into that. Tell me what a DNO does in general and then what your role involves specifically. Yeah, right. Well, a, a DNO, we, we move the electricity from A to B, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, our job is to get it from the, um, the power stations of the local wind turbines or whatever to people's houses and businesses yeah so it's the wires the transformers the cables that run through the street that we look after yeah mm-hmm. which means that when someone wants a, a new connection to the system it's to your local dno that you would go and there's the six dnos uh or six companies um, have dno licenses within the uk uh, and there's also another uh, thing there which is an independent distribution network operator which is some independent companies that run um, small networks sort of dotted around about the, uh, the country as well. So, so that that's that's what a DNO. That's sort of very different from your suppliers, so the person that um, uh, charges you, you know, sends you the bill if you like, and deals with the uh, metering side of things, mm-hmm. and the generators that uh, produce the energy. So we're about we're like the road network of the system. Yeah, moving things around. All right. So how does that differ from the concept of what people know as the national grid? Yeah, national grid, they do sort of bulk transfer of energy from, from um, specific points around the country. And that's where we get, that's where we link into, yeah. So they do the, the, the great big you know, transmission lines that run across the country. So they'll move from, you know, very, very large amounts of energy from one place to another. Other than very large industrial customers, they, they generally don't deal with 
individual connections to individual properties, that would be your, your local distribution network. Okay, so for example, if we look at some of the offshore wind that we've got out in the North Sea there, that comes in from whoever owns that offshore wind thing into the national grid. They'll then send it down and, and it will then go into your particular aspect of, of the distribution network and then you'll pass it on to the individual. That's, that's exactly it, yes, and then, then we move it around locally. Um, okay. Right, right, right to the little grey box. It's called a cutout that sits in your house. Yeah. <laughs> so, what does your role involve specifically? Yeah, well, my my job uh, in, in future networks is to basically look out for the sort of challenges that are coming our way in terms of what we're going to have to change on the system to make sure that we can cope with the uptake of low carbon um, um, uh, technologies. Um, how can we reduce the um, the carbon that our system itself uses as well? How can we its efficiency and basically you know keeping ahead of the changes that are happening round about us so a large proportion of what i do is uh can after our innovation portfolio so we've actually been innovating the theme of electric vehicles for over 10 years now um with projects like my electric my electric avenue which was done quite a few years now that, that, that looked at how people would charge and what impact that would have on the network. So, so it's, it's that sort of discovering what, what's going to happen when these things then occur and also making sure we've got the, the tools um, available when the time comes to deal with these changes as well. Interesting. So what are, the, what are some of the biggest challenges that you encounter day to day trying to do that? Uh, well, the, the, the biggest challenge is basically at the moment is the uncertainty associated with the uptake of low carbon technology, and, and to be honest, that is getting simpler and simpler as days go on. And, you know, if you were to talk maybe five, six years ago, as you well know, and there's, there's still a lot of scepticism around about various technologies for the heat pumps or the electric vehicles or whatever. But that is day by day becoming less and less of an issue, um, and uh, so that that was certainly one of the things. And and um, another, another aspect is the challenges, kind of understanding how quickly and where low carbon technology is going to appear in the system because one of the one of the things that you need to understand about dno is that um uh, the way we get paid effectively is that we we have um a regulator it's called off gem uh, and and every uh, five years we go to off gem and we have to tell them how much money we expect to spend on the network and their remit is to stop us building too much network and putting up customers bills as a result so we have to justify every bit of expenditure that we put into our system. And that leaves you with a quandary because, you, you know, especially as things start to ramp up with low-carb technologies, you need to be able to invest ahead of need effectively to allow these assets, to these low-carb technologies to connect. But you also need to show that you're not unnecessarily reinforcing networks and spending money that could actually be saved instead. So that, that, that's a big chance, that balance between uncertainty and certainty. Is that getting a lot easier, or, well, a little bit easier, now that the government has sort of set us on this mythical path to net zero? Yes, yes, it, it, it is. It's, it's definitely getting easier. The, the, the regulator has is, is, is woken up um, to the, the challenge here, um, and there's a lot of um, uh, government um, uh, like momentum that's helping to reduce that uncertainty. It does still leave you with the challenge of which particular locations and what specific things are going to be required where right down to the macro level Mm -hmm. Um, but at a sort of policy level it's definitely getting easier yeah interesting let me just look back a little bit you talk about uh, the funding for dnos coming through off gen is is it are they the people who fund you or do they take money from 
somewhere else so from the power companies themselves to fund you how how's what's that mechanism the way, way we were funded at a, a basic level is that um we 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 um agree with off gym how much money is going to be needed to run the network over a set period of time mm-hmm. including all the reinforcements and things that are going to be required for low carbon technologies yeah and there's a a, a very prolonged process we go through with off gym to where, where they kind of convince themselves that that's value for money for customers yeah and once that's agreed, then the cost of, of running the network is spread over all the customers in our area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there's a small proportion of everybody's bill is made up of the cost of looking after the network and reinforce the network for low carbon technologies or any other reason for that matter. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's interesting. But actually, one, one, of the, one of the interesting consequences of this is people sometimes, the reaction to that is, oh, does that mean my bills are going to be going up because of <laughs> low-carbon technologies? And it's, it's an obvious question to ask, but actually, when you sit down and do the sums, it's a bit like a road. You know, if, if you've got one car going along a road a day and you're charging that car for the, that, the entire cost of that road, that's going to be a very, very expensive car journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you've got a million cars going along that road, Every day, you know, the cost per car is much, much less. It's the same with energy. If, if, if low carbon technologies like electric vehicles, heat pumps are going to increase the utilization of the networks that we already have. So if you divide that cost out across everybody, what we're expecting to see is the actual cost per unit of running the networks will be less than it would be if you didn't have that growth of energy going through the network. Now, that's, that's a a modelling question is not necessarily absolute, but that's what we expect to happen. And that's been reflected in some of the publications that Ofgem have put out recently as well. I mean, we know from people like the National Grid that they've said that infrastructure can support, you know, 30 million electric cars. Um, but we know from experience that there are going to be certain areas in certain parts of the country where local infrastructure can't deal with some of the power needs. I mean, I mentioned before on the podcast that there are reasons that are, there are very few charges in the middle of Dartmoor. And it's because, you know, there isn't necessarily the infrastructure there to deal with that. So who has that responsibility to upgrade the local infrastructure and how's that paid for? Yeah, in, term, in terms of the network, um, uh, we have a, a, a particular license obligation to provide supplies for anybody that applies. Mm-hmm. But, but that's charged for and, and this is another hot topic at the moment as well which is the way that we charge now, if you if you're applying for a new connection at the moment, you're upgrading a connection the way it works is that um, the equipment that's close to your property and is only supplying you yeah mm-hmm. and some of some of the stuff local to you you pay for yeah. yeah but if we have to let's say reinforce a transformer that's five miles away from you because of your your new connection you don't pay for that. That's spread across the bills of all the customers in the UK. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that that that's what they call like the depth of, of charging. Yeah. Now there's a, a consultation going on at the moment uh, that Offgem are doing that are looking at the idea of making it sh- what they call shallower. So that means that more of the costs of a new connection or an upgrade is actually paid across all the customers is socialized, if you like, yeah, mm-hmm. and a lower proportion is actually paid by the customer that is connecting. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now that has implications, but also it can also make you know decarbonisation easier. So, so it, it's quite a politically sensitive kind of topic because there's so many different angles to it. But, but that that's how that's how it's um, being considered and what's being thought about at the moment. Okay. I, I want to. Uh, sort of talk a little bit about 
you know, piggybacking on what you said there um, about a, an individual making a connection to uh, the network. Um, but I'll come back to that in a second, because at a larger or a, a macro level, when we talk about the national grid, do they say to you, for example, here's 30 gigawatts of capacity for a specific area and you manage it as you wish? Or is it a bit more complex than that? Um, it's more complex than that. Um, I mean, it would be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, but it's not that complicated to explain to PowerPoints. That they, what, what national grid um, do uh, it's called a FES, a Future Energy Scenarios Report every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that is, is, is they, they gather a lot of data, they do a lot of work with stakeholders, and they pull together this plan of how they think demand is going to grow in each area. And they, they, they plan their system to allow for that overall growth. But we also do what's called a, a, a distribution or distributed FES, which is a, a local version of that. So each individual area in our network we'll do engagement we'll speak to local authorities and also different organizations to understand what the patterns are going to be in that area specifically what effectively happens is you blend these three, two things together and that that creates the plan for where you're going to have to reinforce and, and make capacity available in the system yeah no yeah absolutely that makes sense um if we then sort of take it down to a lower level one of the things i'm considering doing within the next six months is sticking some nice uh, solar panels and a battery on my house. Now, why, for example, is there a limit on the amount of solar that someone can install privately without needing DNO intervention? What's what's the criteria for that? It's the laws of physics, basically, um, and safety. Um, yeah, the, 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 one, of the, one of the things that you have to bear in mind with a, a distribution network is that we rely on diversity. Yeah. And again, kind of using the road analogy, it's a bit like roads rely on diversity. If, if everybody in a town decided they were going to go out in their car at exactly the same time, yeah, the road network wouldn't be able to cope with it. And it's just the same with um, electrical networks. We rely on the fact that there's diversity in the way that people use energy. So when you put new demands on or new generation sources that are continuous in nature, yeah, like they're always on. So a solar panel is always on through the, through a sunny day. Yeah, um, a heat pump is always on. An electric car is on for a significant amount of time when it's charging from from empty. You know, and and these things basically overload that diversity on the system. Yeah, they make the roads too busy. Effectively, using the analogy again, um, and that's why we need to be able to uh, you know have a look at each individual application and see what sort of impact it's going to have on the system. There's all sorts of other things like power quality and stuff like that, but that's the kind of core um, rationale as to why we have to be in there and understand how, how what sort of impact these connections are going to have on the system. You see, now that's interesting because if I look at it not knowing what you've just said there, to me it would make more sense to say, well, no, if we put solar on everybody's roof, then you know that's putting more renewables into the system. That can only be a good thing because you can then start to look at downgrading some of the other sources of electricity that maybe aren't as uh, as clean but from yeah well, well it, 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 it is a good thing it's not not saying it's not a good thing but it has implications which if we don't address through things like applications and and, and better ways than that as well then then there'll be consequences and that 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 the consequences we would start to get issues with power quality and interruptions of supply and so on which is, is not acceptable so it can all be done but it needs to be done in a in a considered manner, if you like, so we maintain the safety and security of the system. How have the recent, I'm going to say issues, how have the recent problems that we've had with um, 
the pricing of electricity uh, affected you as a as an organization or is that something that's more or less transparent for you at, at the, the level i operate at which kind of you know the, the engineering the connection side of the business it's, it's it's not been a vast impact but there, there has been impact in, in terms of um, you know, dealing with vulnerable customers and so on. We've got a, a large part of our business is, is, is you know, focused on making sure we're supporting the vulnerable customers. And uh, certainly been a significant change in the sort of um, volume of activity and types of activity that we're going to be doing through that sort of area. But in terms of the day-to-day functioning of the, the system, it's not had any profound impact on the way we operate okay. as a distribution. All right, that makes sense. One of the other things that I'm thinking of putting in is a a nice heat pump, air source heat pump. So obviously we've had a number of announcements over the um, previous couple of days about uh, government incentives for heat pumps and things like that. At a basic level, to me, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. But I can see from what we've discussed today that that could cause maybe a short-term issue for you as a DNO. Would that be an accurate statement? It, it it would it creates additional chances we have to be ready for. But but to be perfectly honest, um, we, I mentioned about price reviews before. You know, and, and the fact that we put this plan into off gem every five years. Well, we're, you know, all the DNOs are currently going through the process of producing the plan from twenty twenty three to twenty twenty eight, and uh, almost without exception, they're all allowing for very large volumes of heat pumps and electric vehicles and the money that they're asking for this time around, you know. Um, so so as long as we are ready for it, then it shouldn't cause problems, but we'll be kind of busy, um, you know, getting ready for it. That's without a doubt. Okay. Let me play devil's advocate on that then. Supposing, I mean, one of the things we also know uh, historically is that the price of solar panels was initially very, very high. It dropped a lot quicker than people expected. So that, therefore, the uptake of solar panels increased higher than was forecast. What happens if a similar thing happens to heat pumps? And, you know, you forecast for X hundred thousand to go in in a year and suddenly it's two or three X hundred thousand. What would yeah. happen? Would you just say, no, you can't do that? Or would there be an emergency way of sorting it out or what? Yeah, well, the, 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 you know, just just for example, in our, in our plan, we've allowed for 800,000 heat pumps and 1.3 million electric vehicles in our area, which is just a proportion of the UK, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that, that's, what, that's what's going into Off-Gem in our, in our ED2 plan. But within the plan, Off-Gem have put in uncertainty mechanisms. So if things change partway through the price review, we can go back and make adjustments to the ask. To be honest, the, the biggest issue is probably going to be around about um, you know resources, um, uh, people to do the work, um, you know supply chain, all these sort of things. So making sure that we've got the supply chain, the training, and all these sort of things in place is going to be key. But to be honest, that same challenge is going to be faced by things like heat pump rollout as well. Anyway, um, so it's, it's not a, a unique challenge for us. It's, certainly something that any large rollout program is going to face interesting interesting because i can definitely see that being um a pinch point at some point as you move forward uh, i think yeah. the demand is going to be a lot higher than the available supply it, it will it, it ultimately will be but there are things we can do to help that and this, the sort of things we're doing um as are the other dnos as well is for example we're, we're doing a lot of work in installing monitoring on in our system um uh, believe it or not, because, because um, we rely on this diversity I was talking about before, we don't necessarily need to know exactly 
how much energy is flowing through every single cable in our system at the moment. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that 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 worked fine for nearly a hundred years. Yeah, but because of this rapid uptake of electric vehicles and low carbon technologies, it's get we'll get to the point where you can't use these assumptions anymore. You've got to know what's going on in your network so you can actually understand when you're going to have to upgrade a network and when you're going to have to put other solutions in place. So, so network monitoring is a big part of that. And another big part of that is smart metering because we get data from smart metering at an aggregated level that, that allows us to work out how much energy is being pulled into each area in any particular half hour. And again, that lets us spot a hotspot on the system well before it gets to the point where we're having to think about, you know, emergency actions, yeah, and, and make an investment or engage with the, the customers and put some things in place to make sure that um, the system is ready when the heat pumps and the electric vehicles come on, you know. So, so we're doing that, which is like monitoring visibility. We're doing a lot of work around about um, getting new sources of data that help us to actually um, predict where the um, hot spots in the system are going to appear. So things like understanding, you know, the volume of inquiries for electric vehicle uptake in a particular area is, is, is of value to us, you know. Maybe the, the, the deliveries of, of electric vehicles from Tesla coming into the, into the UK could be of value to us. All these things that help us to kind of get foresight of when the load is going to pick up and when we start to have a problem. So we've got all these things which are kind of predictive. And then we've got a whole other generation of things which we then do as a reaction to that. So, for example, um, one of the things that we do know is that if people use a smart charger in the home and set that charger up to charge at the off-peak times, although it doesn't help in every instance, in most instances, that means we can get more vehicles connected in any one street than we would be able to if everybody just plugged in and started charging when they got home from work. Mm-hmm. So, so... Um, in fact, just off a meeting earlier today about how we, how we how we do that, you know, so there's, there's you know, options for actually directly engaging with people and, and, and you know, in a short term basis, explaining in a street, you know, we're starting to get a problem in this street. Um, could we encourage you to charge at this time or that time? So it's a kind of a voluntary type of um, option, which is, if you like, a sticky plaster approach. And then there's more sophisticated approach approaches. You know, you know, the sort of thing that Octopus do already, where they've got specific tariffs for. Charging it, well, using that a bit more um, uh, um, creatively to help to solve some of the, the um, network issues as well. So, so we're looking at things that allow us to shift when the energy is being taken around to make more use of the times when, using my road analogy, the road's not busy. Yeah. Ah, so the aggregated data that you were talking about a few moments ago, does that allow you to identify what I think they used to call the Coronation Street bump, where everybody had put their kettle on in the adverts in Coronation Street and boil a, a cup of tea? It's the same, it's the same principle. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're, we're looking for, for data that helps us to pick up where we're going to get um, a rapid uptake of electric vehicles. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, we've got a, a dedicated analytics team that, that, that look at this um, topic and some you know some really interesting correlations we've got some interesting ideas as well about um, data sharing and you know so for example one of the things we're working on is what we're calling data partnerships and the idea here is that we we try and make the journey of getting an electric vehicle as as easy as possible by simplifying the processes people have to go through yeah but in turn we look to get some data as well from um, customers that helps us to inform our decision making in terms of where we invest the network. And the example would be, if you think about it, if you want to buy an electric car, you know, you 
you're lucky enough to be able to buy a new one, you go into the showroom, you speak to the, the sales the salesperson, and and they, they'll they'll talk you through the car and you'll go away. But when you go away, you've still got to deal with getting your charge point in, you know, checking your connections up to up to scratch, getting your grant and all the rest of it. So one of the things we're hoping to do using digitalization is to open up our systems so that someone can you know develop an app, let's say. That the salesman has in their hand yeah when you go in and ask for electric vehicle they'll ask you for your postcode and your concept obviously mm-hmm. and um uh, on the back of that they're able to say well actually we've just pinged the dno and the dno says your house is ready for an electric vehicle connection now yeah we've just pinged the ev charge um, installation company and they can be there on the 14th of july and we've just um, applied for your grant and uh, would you like me to tick the box here to purchase the car you know <laughs> salesman's dream i have to say but 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 still as well the whole point is you're, you're removing the friction that you you get when you try to go low carbon at the moment you know i've, I've got an electric car my dad's got an electric car and and the, the my dad in particular the pain he went through trying to get that car sorted out and the charge point in the house and everything was 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 you know, really bad and anything we can do to remove that friction from the whole process, not just the DNO bit, from the whole process, it's got to be worth quite a few million tons of carbon earlier, you know. Oh, absolutely, completely. I mean, that's a, a fascinating sort of proposal. And I think, you know, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that it can happen. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, fingers crossed that we get something like that, because I think it will be a, a big benefit for everybody. Well, we've we've asked for the um, the uh, funding with our price review for ED2. Um, to do exactly that sort of thing and a lot of other things around about sort of digital arena as well to make the whole experience easier for people. Wonderful. Now that's obviously at, a, at an individual level. Let's take it up a level to our good friends, the, um, the charge point operators. Now, mm-hmm. um, I talk on this podcast quite a lot about the need for more charges everywhere. And I think that's an accepted fact. You know, we, yes. we have um, an infrastructure which needs to progress at a rate to be able to accommodate the large number of electric vehicles that uh, people want to buy or that the government thinks that we ought to have. So, mm. you know, at the moment we have the vast majority of charges are, you know, it's one unit and it's around the back of a, a pub or a hotel or something like that. But we're now starting to see, if you take Tesla out of it, you're now starting to see the increasing number of hubs, four, six, eight uh, different units. So, when a CPO decides that they want to do that, what's their process? Do they come and speak to you first or do they just go ahead and, and sort of say, right, we're going to do that and then hope that you can accommodate it? Or what? what's what's that process? Yeah. This, this, this is, you know, to purpose, one of the things that, um, you know, would make the whole process simpler is that as soon as people are thinking about doing these sort of things, large scale charge points is engage with your DNO early. And, uh, I know some might out there say I've done that and it didn't go well, but, <laughs> but you, know, you, you have to engage, engage your DNO early. And the, the reason for that is that, um, you know, that, that early engagement, that early, uh, early kind of um, exchange of information can really make the process easier down the line. And, and for example, there's, there's places, you know, I could point to where if you uh, ask for a connection in one location, you pay, you know, several hundred thousand pounds, you ask for a location 150 metres away, you could be a few thousand, you know. So, so because you know, as I said before, you know, you pay for that connection. That's that's the the arrangement we have with society, and there's only a proportion of it's socialised, yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you choose a place that has not got any capacity, then it will cost you more money. 
Yeah. So that early engagement is really important. We did a, a, a project in the north of Scotland, um, which was the E9 electrification project. And, mm-hmm. and that one, we actually um, we sat down with the, the, the organisations involved in putting that in and we helped to optimise the locations and it saved a significant amount of money um, in terms of the cost of doing that deployment because we were able to just shift things around to the kind of optimal position. So not that you end up with charge points in stupid places why it's where it's got to be a collaboration but uh, basically sit down and do that do these sums and work out where the best places now the problem for us is that's quite uh, time intensive so a large part of our plan going forward is to make more and more data available and more, provide more visibility of what our network um, can do and can't do in different places so it allows people to do more and more of that sort of thing themselves but at the moment that's not in place to the level of detail you could do it yourself so that early engagement is really important you know so let, let me just loop back onto that what what is it about a move of say 150 meters that would cause such a difference what what's causing that price differential it, it, it's, it's literally what, what what infrastructure is nearby so you know cables overhead lines and that sort of thing and and where is that how heavily loaded is that particular bit of cable already yeah and and also as well, you know what, what's between these two sites as well. So if it's a, a motorway, for example, between these two sites, significant difference. You're being on the left hand side of the motorway to the right hand side of the motorway. You know, so it's physic. It's, it's it's basically geography and physics. Yeah, is the issue. It's not a policy thing. It's it's literally that that energy is not available at that point unless you spend a lot of money to get it to that. Ah, now that's interesting because I was in discussion with a CPO um, executive, and I was t- I was saying to him, you know, there is a particular place that you have a a charger, and it's a single unit. Uh, you you the planning permission was for two, but you ended up doing one. And he said, well, that's because we couldn't get the power to the place. I said, yes, but if I go across the road to uh, the Morrisons that's there, they've got two units. Yeah, um, a different CPO has got that, and that's yeah. obviously a prime example of what you've said yeah. there. That, and and that, well, there's another fact there as well, which is maybe that someone else got there first, because because it is on a first come first serve basis. If if there is capacity on the system and you get your application in and secure that capacity, yeah. then if someone else comes along, there is less capacity available, so they're required to do more investment to get that additional capacity. You know, so so each site will have. A natural, a kind of inherent maximum that it can deliver without requiring reinforcement. Yeah. Uh, there is another angle to this as well, which is back to the kind of thing I was saying about the houses. You know, um, when you need that energy makes a difference as well. And talking talking to your DNO about flexibility now, flexibility has been used for generation connections for getting on for ten years now. It's quite well established. Yeah. For demand, it's new. So different DNOs are at different levels of maturity. This, but all DNOs are kind of pushing towards offering demand flexible connections. And what that might be, you might find at some sites that actually from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m., yeah, you can have half of the capacity you're looking for. Mm-hmm. The rest of the day, you can have all of it. Yeah. yeah. If you ask for all of it all the time, you'll have to pay for all of it all the time. So so there's systems you can put in place and, and contractual arrangements for people say that you know during this spell i won't exceed a certain amount and that means that you can you know for example have a fast charging station that maybe has uh, slightly restricted charging at certain times of day or maybe has less charge points available or maybe even integrate energy storage with the charge point as well to to tell you to bridge that gap you know 
So, so there's lots of options to run a bit of flexibility, but I'll, I will caution that it's, it's a, a relatively immature solution. So different DNOs are working up at the moment. We work through the things called the Energy Networks Association, where we are trying to make sure that we're coordinated and offer the same services around the UK um, between all the different DNOs when it comes to things like flexibility. And I believe that's the topic that you chose to discuss when we did the round table about maybe making uh, variable power available to um, a particular charging location at different types of uh, different times of the day. And I think that's yeah. basically what you mentioned there, isn't it? That's exactly it, yeah. Fantastic. Now, the big question I always have, and it may be something that we've already sort of discussed in this conversation, is why is it that, for example, I'm sitting at a charger um, from uh, an unknown CPO or an unmentioned CPO, and I'm pulling uh, 30 kilowatts, and yet not 100 yards away, there are eight or 12 Tesla superchargers that are all there pulling 150, 250 kilowatts. So does that go back to what you said about first come, first served? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And then what you're willing to pay if you have paid for an upgrade as well. Yeah, now, the, the, the only um, uh, kind of upside to that as well is if someone does go into an area and does trigger a reinforcement and have to pay for that, if a second person then comes along and jumps on the back of the money you just spent getting that connection, there's a sharing mechanism where you get some of your money back. You know? um, there's also some rules around it, but you wanna, if, you, if you want to know more about that, you need to go to a website or something like that. But, but you know, there's a sharing mechanism. But, but ultimately, the answer to your question is yes, it's, it's, it's whoever gets there first and gets that capacity. Yeah. And after that, you have to pay a higher fee effectively to pay for the additional work that gets done. Okay, so if Tesla go in and say, right, I want to put a bank of 12 superchargers here and they pay for the um, the network to be upgraded or whatever to get that. And then let's say Osprey come along and say, all right, we want to put um, some of our new Kempower chargers there, four or five of those. There could be some sort of a sharing agreement on the uh, the power lo- the power if if if, if in that scenario Tesla had put in a big enough connection that there was spare capacity on it yeah um, and and they hadn't sort of contracted for that spare capacity then that additional capacity can be made available to the new customer and there's, and there's a sharing mechanism there um, which means that uh, some of that um, cost would be uh, offset okay and when you talk about increasing the capacity to a particular location. Are you talking about putting a substation in or is it a lot more complex than that? It, it, it can be very different in different places. It, it could be, you know, putting a new transformer in an existing substation, just a bigger one is, is quite, quite common. Um, but sometimes the impact goes all the way back through the network, right back to where we connect to National Grid. And this is where you get some of the, the most complex ones. Sometimes... Um, the total demand in a, an area of our network has got to the point where the national grid connection is no longer big enough, yeah, mm-hmm. and that triggers them to do a reinforcement, and that that's where one of the problems lie because these reinforcements I'm talking about, other than a straightforward connection, you're talking about a lot of time, and it's not, you know, DNOs procrastinating. It's it's, it's things like consents, um, leaves, all these sort of different things that need to be put in place. Um, resource and so on to to get these things in place and and and, and occasions that reinforcement can ripple all the way back to national grid and you end up with a you know a super grid transformer which is you know the size of a small house having to be changed and it's not that particular connection triggered that it's, it was just the you know it was the needle that um, 
straw, straw that broke the camel's back. Better get that one right. <laughs> <laughs> so presumably um, that would account for things or situations such as not more than about three miles away from our, where I live, there is a motorway service area and it's got obviously a, a northbound and a southbound. There are a bank of Tesla superchargers on the northbound that have been active for three years. There is a bank of Tesla superchargers on the southbound that have been installed for three years, but have never been switched on. Is it possible that that's one of the reasons why that's happened? Because something further down the line has needed work that just I, hasn't got. I have absolutely no idea, <laughs> but but uh, but it's not not beyond the realms of possibility that maybe a scenario. But but it's it's unusual for you know you you wouldn't go beyond you know until you're connection is accepted you know what the delay is going to be at that point so it's, uh, it might have happened but it seems unlikely someone install a lot of expensive kit knowing that it was going to be a, a long time until it was um, it was um, able to connect but I, I literally know nothing about that scenario talking about. but we do know that there are um, a number of charges that have been installed at certain locations and when we speak to the cpos and say when are these going to be turned on they're going to say oh well we're waiting for the power or we're waiting for the dno or we're yeah, waiting that, for something that, that, that there, there all there always will be a, a, a time to connection um and uh, that will vary from from site to site and uh, so there's not it's not beyond the realms of possibility there are sites like that uh, okay. around the country but that but the power is that's where i think this discussion about flexible options starts to come in as well because you know that even, even that scenario i talked about where there's a national grid reinforcement required right back at the, the, the super grid um, even in that scenario, you can still that that will not be overloaded all the time, um, and uh, it might not even be overloaded all of the year. Mm-hmm. It might just be certain months of the year that there's there's issues with it, you know. So, so it might be that you can actually operate that charge point, you know, all you know all year except Christmas, let's say, or you know, it depends on the specifics of the site. But and that that's the thing I think we have to get sorted, and that's as I said, it's still in development and there's a lot of different DNOs are in different places with this at the moment, but flexible connections for demand and, and for particularly for large charge points, I think it's got a lot of potential to accelerate the process and at least get the, the forecourt if it live, yeah, mm-hmm. and providing some service for most of the time rather than no service for all of the time. Ah, interesting. Uh, now, we talked on the roundtable about whether players such as GridServe might have upgraded some of their units without upgrading the underlying power supply. And at the time, um, I think you and I were both in agreement that, no, that's probably not what they've done. They would probably have had the discussions to make sure they had the appropriate power so that they would, when they went from a 50 kilowatt up to a 350 kilowatt charger, then it would have... Um, had the appropriate power supply there. However, in the meantime, GridServe have admitted that their units are limited to 60 kilowatts. So do you think it's possible that they have actually upgraded the units just to put them in rather than without actually waiting for the necessary upgrades to the power supply? I've, again, I've, I've got no idea of the specifics, but, but you know, it, w- it wouldn't be um, necessarily a wrong thing to do to... to limit devices and to be honest that that's something that we actively encourage one, one, one of the issues we have at the domestic level is um uh, in a lot of properties the cable that feeds your house this is the last sort of 10 meters into your house is a relatively small cable yeah mm-hmm. and in some locations we used to do what was called a looped service where the cable comes into your house but then comes out of your house and into your neighbor's house right mm-hmm. now in these situations we cannot 
provide a hundred amp supply. Yeah. So so at the moment there's a sort of checking process to make sure that your house isn't connected that way. Yeah, and that's delaying things. Yeah, it's it's slowing down the process. So one of the things that uh, we are working on is 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 limiting the charging output of a of a smart charger, domestic smart charger. Now this is standard. It's standard the one I've got in my house here. You know, you can set the 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 limit as and say this house. You know, as long as the demand for the, the total house is less than sixty amps, then you can charge a car. But as soon as the demand for the house goes above sixty amps, it backs the car off, so you don't exceed the capacity of the connection. And that that's that's a really good practice. What it means is you can connect your domestic EV charger immediately, knowing that it's going to be load limited, which means you don't overload the system and cause safety issues. Yeah. Well, the same could apply to some of the, the larger commercial ones where you, you limit the current to make best use of the capacity you've got available, knowing that in future an upgrade will come along, you'll be able to ramp that capacity up and get the full value out of it. Interesting. So presumably with somebody who may also have a heat pump in their house, that would effectively alter the available amperage yeah. that they've got. It's an interesting one, heat pumps, because heat pumps are challenging from a network's perspective in the sense that they it depends how well they're designed. A poorly installed heat pump will run more or less continuously in cold weather, and, and actually they've got um, electrical uh, you know, heating elements in that come on in, in this particular cold, which can actually cause a lot of demand constantly. One of the advantages with an electric vehicle is that you know it's not sitting there on charge all the time. There is there's scope to move yeah. the time around a bit. Yeah, whereas um, heat pumps, particularly if they're under spec'd, don't have that. Now you can spec heat pumps, so they can provide flexibility. And there's a lot of work going on to understand how much flexibility you can get from a heat pump, and and how much that allows you to move the demand around during the day to get more systems on because otherwise you just lock lock out the capacity in that particular house all day yeah. so so there's a lot of kind of when you start to stack um electric vehicles on top of heat pumps it does start to get more and more challenged which is why ultimately you do need to reinforce the networks um, in a lot of places to allow these things to work and that's why we're kind of moving now to to try and get that program up and running now how much of that will be mitigated by um now, let me step back. We we know from discussions that a lot of people have had, particularly uh, Robert Llewellyn on the Fully Charged podcast, that if you go to somewhere like a, a, an oil refinery, the amount of energy that that oil refinery needs to actually create or uh, make that oil into petrol and diesel is pretty phenomenal. Yeah. You know, or, you know I've, I've heard rumors of, you know, an oil refinery could ha- need the same amount of energy as somewhere like Coventry. Now, whether that's mm-hmm. accurate or not, I don't know, but I would imagine... It's not insignificant. Now, as electric vehicles increase, the need for petrol um, and other fossil fuels decreases. So the amount of energy that we're going to need to do to run those oil refineries is going to increase. Presumably, that's all in the the plan and that will have some sort of an effect on the things that we've just been talking about. Um, As in specifically, oil refineries demand growing. Uh, Well, no, oil refineries... Demand decreasing, which is going to um, free up capacity. Offset, yeah. Uh, the, 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 at a, a kind of national level, that will have an impact. And and uh, but at a local level, from a distribution perspective, it's unlikely to because generally speaking, you know, 
you don't get these sort of loads in the same location as the new loads that are coming on. So, so you know, it doesn't offset one against the other. The one thing that does, though, and is, is absolutely valuable, is energy efficiency. Energy efficiency in the home frees up capacity without a doubt. And in fact, we did a project called SAVE on this, which demonstrated that it's actually more effective to put money into encouraging energy efficiency that in certain situations is to reinforce a network. So, so I think if, you, if you're doing heat pumps without also doing energy efficiency alongside it, it's just making it hard work, you know, and uh, and and you know, bear in mind as also the energy efficiency reduces the cost of running the home as well, which is going to be a good thing as well. So it's it's kind of a it's almost a no brainer that energy efficiency should feature this, and that that does save energy in the same location that you need the energy, and that therefore has an impact for the distribution networks. And presumably, when you talk about energy efficiency, you're talking particularly about things such as making sure the house is fully insulated, so you're not actually losing the energy that you're. Um, that you're Absolutely, doing. yeah, and energy efficiency, lighting, appliances, all these things. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. Well, that then brings me on to um, sort of the last two questions that I've got. Uh, one of which is piggybacking on what we've just been talking about with uh, the public and energy efficiency. What do you wish members of the public knew about DNOs that they don't? They don't. I think. I think some of the things I talked about before about how we are paid would be good that people know that you know everything we do is socialised. You mm-hmm. know, so so if you're shouting for you know new infrastructure and it's not going to be used, it will end up on everybody's bills ultimately. You know, and and you could argue that for in, in any company or any organisation, despite what people say, you know, everything ends up on the bills. You know, yeah. and I think that that socialised aspect, I think, is, is is really important to to convey. Yeah, and I think the other thing which I talked about earlier on is how we are distinct from suppliers and generators, because I think I think people see a kind of conflict of interest in what we're doing, but we don't we don't actually have that because we we don't deal with these aspects of, of um, the system either. You know, and. Uh, and I think was the other thing I'd want people to know is, is you know, we genuinely do care about achieving net zero. Yeah, mm-hmm. genuinely do care about us mucking it up by not being ready for these things and not, you know, you know, I talked about removing friction from the process and all these sort of buzzwords before, but that, you know, we genuinely are trying to make sure every step that we don't become the barrier to this whole transition because that would be a disaster for us and. You know, just from a personal level, most of the people in this business are here, you know, because they see it as, you know, as a business is doing the right thing. And, and that, that could be said for most of the, the DNOs across the UK, you know. And, and I think people could appreciate that. That's from the heart, that one. <laughs> you know? um, that would be, it would be great, you know. Well, that, again, that falls very nicely into my last question, because if you're talking about um, going for net zero, then... With all the best will in the world, you as a DNO cannot achieve net zero by yourself. It needs a lot of yeah. other things to fall into place. It needs governments to make sure that they put the right policies. It needs the public to accept those policies, etc. So if you were king for a day, what would you do to make the rollout of EV charging quicker or easier or and or um, put ourselves on the path to success for net zero? I think, I think it's, it's not like a eureka thing but the one thing i would do would be i'd back off this over dependence on markets for the rolling out of EV charging points because it's never going to end up with 
all the places it needs served being served. So if you're relying on someone seeing a business case for a charge point before anything gets rolled out, we'll be waiting a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's a model, the model that comes from um, the Netherlands, which I think is a really good model. What, what, they're, what they're doing there is they're going for this thing called, called they, they basically go for a charging infrastructure plan. So what they've done is it still, it still has markets and competition in it, right? So it's not completely <laughs> off the wall. But what they do is they, they, they sit down at a local authority level and they decide where they need to charge points through their entire area. Yeah. yeah, and they sit down with the local DNOs as well, and they do this thing I said we were doing with the A nine. So they say, right, where is the best place to have them? Yeah, yeah. And then what they do is they do a, a competitive tender to get companies to do that rollout. So they don't have to; these companies don't have to know that that particular charge was going to make a profit. They are winning the contract to deploy it, and they go and deploy this this um, infrastructure uh, across an area. Still getting all the benefits of you know competitive tendering and all the rest of it, but uh, you get the charging infrastructure where you need it ahead of need as well, you know. And and you know it, it was kind of accentuated that that particular issue is kind of accentuated by a particular project we did called eTourism. We're we're looking at uh, I think I mentioned this last time I was on, on the, the show here. Um, we we looked at um, locations that rely on tourism, and we looked at um, you know what's the normal level of electric vehicle Activity you're going to get in the SEDA out of the tourist season. In particular case, um, point was that four thousand you know um, homes would need access to EV charging points. And then we looked at well, what's the impact during peak tourist season? I can't remember the exact numbers, but something like twelve thousand you know uh, vehicles would need charged in that area. Mm-hmm. So what 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 right-minded investor is going to put infrastructure in that area, knowing that their charge points are going to be busy for three months of the year? It's not going to make yeah. financial sense. It's, it's not. It's not. And, and, and yet, unless you do it, you're going to completely kill the EV-based economy in that area. Yeah. They rely on. So, so you know, you, we need to accept that there's an. If we need this infrastructure, then put some, you know, kind of decision making behind it to actually make it happen. Yeah. And that, that that's the thing I'd do. I'd actually you know take the problem by the scruff of the neck and actually find a way of delivering it rather than relying on some probabilistic market model that might deliver it if the wind's blowing the right direction and the economics are right you know so that's what i would do and i think that's um perfectly uh, acceptable as a as an answer for that because we, we've we've talked about it on the podcast a number of times that you know if a, a, a cpo has uh, the option of saying well i could put a charger in in the middle of Welsh Wales, where it might get used once, maybe twice a day, or I, or I can spend the same money and put one in the middle of London, where it might be used 15, 20, 30 times a day, where am I going to spend my money? Well, obviously, we're going to spend yeah. it in, in London, aren't they? But, you know, at the end of the day, charging has to become as ubiquitous for electric vehicles as it is for uh, filling in filling petrol for um, a fossil fuel car. And they've, Absolutely. They've, they've got petrol stations everywhere. Now, do they all make money? I don't know. Probably not on the petrol themselves. Maybe on the ancillaries. That may be something else to look at. But your point, absolutely well made. Right. I. That's all my questions for you. I want to thank you very much for your time, Stuart. It's been um, very, very informative. And I know that uh, a lot of the listeners are going to go away looking or thinking about DNOs in a, a slightly different way. I certainly am. So thank you very much for your time. That's great. Thank you. That was an interesting session.
it's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. We've all been to big concerts and seen light shows and heavily amplified guitars and the like. Ever wonder where the power that runs those is coming from? Well, in many cases, it's huge diesel generators that are trucked up to the venue and switched on, belching noxious exhaust gas and carbon dioxide out into the atmosphere. News comes now that the UK band Coplay have struck a deal with BMW to use i3 batteries in place of these generators on their next tour. The music of the Spheres World Tour will be hitting different big cities around the world in the summer of 2022, and BMW have helped build something special to commemorate the occasion. Instead of using diesel or gasoline generators to power the band's equipment during the tour, BMW recycled over 40 i3 batteries and combined them into one massive portable tour battery that could be recharged after each show. The recharging will be done through a combination of solar power, generators powered by vegetable oil, power bikes and a kinetic stadium floor. Yes, a kinetic stadium floor, using the fans who attend the show to actually recharge the batteries, providing the power to the show. Not sure how much energy a Coplay concert generates, but it's got to be a little bit, right? The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap. ZapMap is the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK. Use it to search for available charges, plan electric journeys, pay for charging on participating networks, and share updates with other EV drivers. ZapMap is free to download and use, with subscription plans for enhanced features such as using ZapMap in-car, on CarPlay, or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingsEV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link's in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? Well, if you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings. That's ko-fi.com slash evmusings. And you can do just that. It takes Apple Pay too. If you want a quick reference ebook to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called So You've Got Electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at evmusings with the words DNOs are great. Hashtag, if you know, you know. Nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder, Simon. You know, he's more than happy to share his wisdom, knowledge and expertise to whoever wants to listen to it. Electric cars, uh, east gates, one wheels, you name it. But he does have a finite time and patience for this. Because it is on a first come, first serve basis. Many thanks for listening. Goodbye.